0: Everybody, welcome to three, two, one, no kidding. I am Bobby the Awesome, and today I have a West Coast friend, Andrew Colkin. Welcome to three, two, one.
1: Welcome, welcome, glad to be here.
0: I'm happy to have you. You jumped out at me from the summit. Just from your one pager, had to meet you, knew I wanted to talk to you before you even did your two minute thing. So, um, I, I, just, this is a topic near and dear to my heart and obviously near and dear to yours and talking about a survivor and a spouse of someone that is an alcoholic or a problem drinker. I'm funny about my language sometimes because I never know who's listening. I don't want to offend right. the people in the industry. All right. So yeah, I'd love to dive in. Why don't you start by just kind of introducing yourself and we'll go from
1: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my name is Andrew Kolk. I wrote a book called Amanda, A Cautionary Tale. And what it was, it was, it's really the story of my wife's 20, 25 year decline into this abyss of alcoholism. I call it madness because it was really madness the last few years. Uh, and it's really the the story of uh you know, the beginnings with the two of us, you know, we're, we were both insurance brokers. She was a very dynamic person. She had these bright piercing blue eyes. I mean, this is actually a picture of her face on the cover. I use that as the cover because I mean, she had a very beautiful face. None of the, all of that was gone by the end. She was became an unrecognizable shell of what she was. And it's, it's really the slow decline and how it affected myself and my son. And ultimately a couple key points that I want, really wanted to get through with it is I want people to understand it as a disease, no different than cancer or heart disease. And that society, re- we really have to understand it as a disease because people, it's so easy to laugh at the person who's fallen down drunk um, and, and we don't understand it. Uh, but that person is really reaching out. That person is really struggling and they're they're essentially in a life or death situation. We have to be less reactionary. You know, we, we don't look at the person who has cancer and they're going through chemotherapy and they have no hair on their head. We don't laugh at that person. So Why do we laugh at the person who's fallen down drunk like it like it's a, a joke or something, uh, especially if it's a chronic thing? And these are issues that I really want to I want to have come out uh, in my talks and in my book uh, and, and to help, you know, certainly college age kids before they become chronic, you know, and to understand to make better decisions, even though you have all this peer pressure at that age, uh, that it's a very ugly road. And uh, if I can scare somebody straight, you know, that's, that's what I'm here for. You
0: know? But that's what I was going to ask you is, what was your why behind this? You didn't have to write a book. You don't have to be, you know, on stages talking to people. Like, What was your motivation behind that?
1: I, I think it was about, uh, it was about three weeks after my wife died. And I was, I came home from, I had a really good day. I came home. I think I made a bunch of sales, drove up in the driveway. And there was this box sitting on the front porch. As soon as I drove up in the driveway, I knew exactly what it was. And it just shook me. I went over, I picked it up. I walked in the house and it was my wife's ashes. And I realized, you know, we were married for 25 years and we've been together for 27 I mean, I was 57 when she passed. I'd knew her since I was 30. And all I had left was a box of ashes. That's all I had left. There was nothing left. You know, and I go, I, I've got to create something positive from this experience. There has to be something more than just a box of ashes. Um, and the story, although maybe, maybe, which unfortunately may not be as unique as I, I thought it was, but, my, but it's my story and it's unique in that way. Uh, and the fact that, that how I can present it and, and help others, I think it's, it's, I got to make something out of her life and our life together. That's my why.
0: I love that. That's a beautiful yeah. reason. So do you want to take us through what it looked like? You said she had been sick for a really long time. You know, when I first
1: met her, you have to realize I was totally ignorant of, of alcoholism. I, I didn't really have any of that in my family, although I grew up in an Irish family. <laughs> I, Irish, German, yeah, there, there was alcohol, but my dad might have had a bourbon every two weeks when he got paid or something. He was a high school principal. My mother never drank, and her side of the family, they, they never drank. My wife's family, they were Canadian, so there was a, kind of a French side, so they all drank white wine, and I'd never been exposed to it. When I first met her, she was drinking uh, a 0. .7, you know, 0. 0.75, 750-milliliter bottle of wine almost every day. I didn't think anything of it because I just thought that it was part of her culture. I thought it was a cultural thing her family drink. Well, you know, 10 years later, that 0. 0.75 milliliters was 1.75 milliliters, seven days a week. Uh, and then it included other things, you know, mixed drinks, you know, and, and it just, it just grew from there. The problem started when she started getting, I think after she had our son and she, she really lost her purpose. Um, She stopped working, I think, which was the most difficult thing. Uh, I mean, I was doing very well and she didn't really have to work anymore. And it was probably in retrospect, it was probably the worst decision she ever made because she just kind of lost herself. She didn't need to do much of anything. Uh, And that's, and it snowballed from there from about 2012 until she passed away in 2020 it was just a, if you had it on a grid, it would just look like this, you know, <laughs> it was just straight down and got worse and worse and worse. She started getting DUIs. Uh, then we had to start, you know, there, there was no way to escape that. There was no way to say that, you you know, you need to go to rehab. And, you know, we had interventions with just between the two of us. I said, yeah, you want to continue? You're going to a rehab.
0: Did she go? Yes,
1: yeah, she did. She ended up going to seven rehabs. You know, she got her first DOI in 2014. I think she went, uh, then she got a series of them. You know, I mean, after I was near the end, she was driving around. She was uninsurable. She had, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't get, you know, car insurance on her. I purposely did not register her car and she had no license. Her license was revoked. So she was literally, and she'd drive around drunk. And I did everything I could to hide keys, hide money, hide bank accounts, hide everything you could. But you know, when someone's creative, they'll, they'll find a way. They can always order another bank card. Yeah. <laughs> you know, find another credit card. I mean, I used to, near the end. I used to have to go to bed. I, I had to hide my wallet. I had to hide my keys. I had to hide any any way for her to to get out of the house. It became very isolating but it's, it's that is my story but to, to help people you you have to get to the point where you need to draw a line in the sand uh for your own sanity when someone is has DUIs and they're out of control and they're not they're no longer contributing to your life or even their own life you get to the point where you got to draw a line in the sand and protect your own sanity and to protect your own life and rehab you know I could go on about rehabs but they're, they're really a Band-Aid. You know, I used to, used to see this show called Intervention. And you would have a family sitting around. Usually uh, it was shot in a hotel. And then the, the uh, alcoholic would come in. They'd sit down. And <clears throat> there'd be a lot of back and forth. And then the alcoholic would say, yes, I, I agree to go to the inter- intervention. And the whole family would be hugging him like it was Christmas. And like, oh, he's going to be saved. I mean, in reality, that's almost laughable. I mean, it, it's a Band-Aid. It's the beginning. You know, it's the beginning of someone realizing that they have an issue. At least, uh, it's a thirty-day break for the alcoholic, but more importantly, it's a thirty-day break for the family. But the, what the breakdown with rehabs and just to get into a little bit, rehabs are between thirty and forty thousand dollars a month. There's some in Malibu that are like you know sixty, 000, seventy thousand dollars a month, and some of these places. I call them more resort than rehab.
0: (laughs) So did you try different ones for Amanda?
1: Yeah. She went to Michael's house a number of times in Palm Springs. She went to the last one she went, because I wanted to get her farther away uh, was in Los Angeles and she was there for 18 hours and uh, she fell down a flight of stairs and got a concussion. Uh, She was in UCLA for about a month. Um, And then, you know, her, her blood pressure was too low. She had like 12 operations she had so much damage inside of her internally that they just kept her open. And they were going in every day trying to clean out all the bacteria and, you know, just all the mess that was in there. I mean, she her liver had you know cirrhosis of the liver and her intestines were a mess. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, her blood pressure went so low, they just said, you know, we, we have to call it at this some point. Uh, and just just getting there before she passed away is a story. That's really the first chapter is they called me up. And they said, well, they told me a bunch of things that that she was not going to make it. And I said, so she's going to die. She's how much time do I have? I go, well, you've got about two hours. And I'm in Temecula on a Friday afternoon. And I had to get to UCLA Medical Center in two hours through Friday traffic.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
1: Long story short, I got there about three minutes before she died, you know, Uh, literally just walked in. And they were just they were just taking off the machines. And she was, you know, she passed away pretty much. I had enough time to hold her hand and she passed away. Um, But it was just, it was just the end of, you know, 20 years of, of this lifestyle. And I always say she was in denial up until they, I held her hand and they turned the machines off. Number one thing an alcoholic has to do is to face their denial. Unless they have the (laughs) self-actualization that they say that I have a problem the problem's never going to go away and it's going to manifest itself into worse and worse behavior and you're going to get into another degree of alcoholism. And there's really four degrees of alcoholism. Uh, The last three or four, you don't want to go down because you only have, once you become a chronic alcoholic, you've got about a 5% chance of survival, about 5%.
0: And what are you saying are the, Causes of death is it things like cirrhosis or accidents with DUIs? Like, what are those? What are the ninety-five percent dying from? Is it just everything?
1: Yeah, usually it, it could be a plethora of things. Usually, it's cirrhosis of the liver. You have liver cancer, heart disease. It affects your heart. If someone uh, um, diabetes is always attached to it. Problem is, you you will create a there's a lot of calories in wine and beer, and the person could die of obesity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which affects your heart. You eat bad food when you drink alcohol. You tend to want fatty, uh, sugary foods. You don't eat the best. You're not making the best food choices. You're eating horrible food, and that all affects your body. You're obviously not exercising. You know, you're not taking care of yourself. I mean, at one point, Amanda she had she had a, lot, a number of problems, but she had uh, thyroid stop working when she was like in her twenties. Which only added to the problem. She shot up at one point to over 300 pounds. I mean, she was tall; she's about five foot nine, but she had gastric bypass surgery. She had her stomach removed, and she lost about 150 pounds. But and they told me when they did that operation that uh, number one thing you can't drink anymore. Mm. It didn't stop her for a week, you know. Oh wow! Even after having your stomach removed, so the the just the chemical dependency uh, of the alcohol was just so, was so overpowering that nothing could stop it. Nothing. Uh, I just, you know, I just want to prevent people from having to go down that
0: road. You sound very educated about all of this, Andrew, were you going, mm-hmm. like, were you in 12 step? What were, what was your journey like alongside of her? Cause you mentioned, you know, you have to take care of yourself or that the right. families are impacted. So can you share kind of what your journey looked like alongside of that?
1: Yeah, well, for my side of it, it's kind of, it was, a lot of it was terrifying. You know, um, there are times when you come out of a rehab, she would come out of, so she hadn't drinking for 30 days, or maybe another week went by. So maybe she hadn't had a drink in five or six weeks. And you feel comfortable enough, I remember one time she said she had to, she wanted to make some dinner, so she wanted to go to the grocery store. I mean, like, the mundane thing of going to the grocery store. It's like two miles away. They I said, okay, here's your – she had a BMW X5. I said, here's your truck keys. Didn't see her for three days. We didn't know where she was.
0: Mm.
1: Never saw her. You know, from my aspect, terrifying. Uh, eventually, uh, a police officer called us up and said we found her in a park. She was passed out in a park. And they had taken her to the emergency room and, you know, we went and found her in the emergency room. It's just examples like that. You never knew what to expect. When I came home from work, I did not know what to expect. What person was I going to find there? Was I going to find somebody passed out on the floor in their own vomit and urine and and whatever, you know, or was I going to find somebody who was (laughs) semi-awake that I could talk to, (laughs) you know, it was very, it was very, very nerve wracking. On a day to day basis, looking back, I don't even know how I went through it. I had some coping things that I did. My son, I guess I wasn't paying enough attention to him because when Amanda died, he's 22 now. He was 19 when she died. He weighed 298 pounds. He's six foot one. He's tall too, but I didn't realize that he had been coping by eating mechanisms himself. Um, and then when he went to college about six months before he, she died, I'm so glad we dropped him off and got him out of the situation, but he started going on a, a fasting diet. Like he wouldn't eat for 14, 16 hours. Then he would eat just broccoli and, uh, chicken and, and rice. When I picked him up in December after four months, he was already down 50 pounds, <laughs> And six months after she was gone, he was down to 185 pounds. He, he lost 115 pounds wow. in the, you know, within the year of, of her passing. Um, so that he was able to cope and, and regroup. You know, I, on the other hand, I just went to the gym and just did, uh, you know, weight training and, and bodybuilding and all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, when I was 56, I lifted uh 752 pounds on a deadlift. I was just getting. It was my zen. It was my uh, emotional escape from all of this. Was just, um, you know, go hitting the gym and, and overdoing that. Uh, my son ate and I went to the gym. Th- these are coping skills that we had that I didn't even recognize in myself because I had to deal with this 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 stress of everyday living uh, with it. A lot of people say, well, "Why would you stay? You know, why did you stay?" That's that, that's always a good, looking back. I'd have conversations with my son. Do you think I should, you know, you want you want to just make it you and me? We can go someplace else, you know, or should I put mom in an apartment? I mean, he you know, would always say, "Dad, do do what you got to do," you know. I don't. It's not my decision, but I'll, I'll certainly back what you do. And the thing is, I just wanted to get him through his childhood. You know, I just wanted to get him till he at least went away to college, which is essentially what I did. But I don't know if it was always the best decision. Um, I also knew in the back of my head, if I put Amanda in an apartment and, and somehow separated her, I mean, she, there's no question she would have been dead in a month or she would have gotten a car and probably hit somebody or ran somebody over. Again, not, not my problem at that point, but I knew that was the reality and that was the reality that I would have to face. So <laughs> I, I lived with it until he was going to college.
0: We had, I have an uncle that did that. His ex-wife, she eventually went to an apartment on her own. She must have nine lives. I don't know how she did it, but I mean, she set the apartment on fire from smoking and drinking, passing out a cigarette. So you're right. Um, She went to prison for the DUI. So all of those things that you're describing are real. right? And, And honestly, as you're talking, I don't, I give you a lot of credit. I don't know how you stayed um, from a sanity perspective?
1: Well, I, again, you know, I just, cause I had a stressful job too. I mean, I had to do group presentations in front of, you know, I, I dealt with the senior market. So I had to deal with, uh, you know, doing a presentation of people who can't see and hear me that well. So you have to be very patient. <laughs> I, think, I think you learn a lot of patience being in that industry and just in, you know, in-home presentations, you know, millions of them, but, and then coming home to that, it was, it was really draining on me. I think, the end, the last rehab that I put her in, I mean, I told her this was it because by then Griffin had been in college for about four or five months and it was after Christmas. So in January of 2020, I, I put her in a rehab. I said, you know, you're not coming back home. Mm-hmm. You know, when I dropped her off, I said, this is it. And what I was going to do, is she was going to be in that rehab and then I was going to put her in a sober living for six months. I wanted to give her at least the opportunity to dry out for a good period of time. And then maybe she could get a job and, and get her life back together. Um, that was my goal. But, you know, she was there at the last rehab for 18 hours. I don't even know if she was there that long. And she fell down a flight of stairs and that, that was the end of it. Piece of me that wonders if she fell down the stairs on purpose, too. That we always wondered that. Because she, oh. she, she knew she wasn't coming home. She knew it was the end of the road.
0: Yeah, that was not my first inkling when you said it. 18 hours later, in theory, she would have been sober by definition right Well, she had
1: she had fallen down I knew she had fallen down the stairs at our house um I came home like two days before I brought her to the last rehab big gouge in her head and then I noticed I have a I have a big cabinet that was near the bottom of the stairs and there's like a chunk I mean you you wouldn't have to take a sledgehammer to break the bottom of this thing there's a big chunk out of it. I'm looking at how that happened she goes oh I might have fallen You know, I'm sure she probably got a concussion from that because she wasn't making much sense. You know, I'm sure it was a combination of alcohol. and She probably already had a concussion. When she fell down at the rehab, it probably pretty much just finished her off. The last time I saw her, I mean, not to get too grisly, she came out of the shower because she was going to go to the rehab. And she wanted to take a shower before she went. And the whole right side of her body, purple, looked like somebody taking a baseball bat to it. Um, And she probably fallen down the stairs many, many times. Uh, you know, when I wasn't there,
0: the falls will do it. In addition to their insides being all mushy oh, it, and not well,
1: right, It tears your tears your insides apart.
0: So, have you gone to have you gone to um,
1: I, I never went to Al-Anon, No, never did. I, I asked my my son and I. We didn't really want to go. I think my Al-Anon was writing the book to some extent and to and to make a purpose out of all this.
0: I'm curious yeah. <laughs> because you working past- myself through it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I'm curious because you're passionate about calling it a disease. And that's where okay. I picked up that lingo was from 12 step program. Okay. And I'm in recovery, you know, from gambling and I haven't drank in a couple of years and there's still times, and this is my own like ego and my own stuff right? I still struggle with it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to compare myself to someone as cancer I right. feel like I have a choice, and then I'm being a failure by being an addict, right? Like, so even right. I have a hard time accepting that it's a disease, does right? And
1: but does make sense? It does make sense? But like a disease, just like cancer, if you catch it in stage one, you have a much higher success rate of survival, just like alcoholism. If you're able to stop at a much earlier time, or whatever addiction. You know, gambling. If, you, if you're able to catch it when it's in earlier stages, you have a better chance of survival, just like a disease. Clinically, uh, it's a disease because it's a medical, it's a mental and physical necessity. Just like gambling is a mental disease, that's more of a mental thing.
0: Yeah, behavioral. Yeah, it's a behavioral. behavioral.
1: But what what's the what's the root of that? What causes that? There, there's something lacking in one's life, or it's trying, it's, it's filling a void of something else going on in your life.
0: That is a hundred percent (laughs) true. That is a hundred percent true. Yeah, Drew, took me a lot of years to figure that out. Some of it is escaping and voids. Right. And then some of it is, and I think that this is the way I understand your relationship to this, like wanting to help the college and the youth people gambling's like right in front of us but mm-hmm. it's not as talked about. And right. we encourage it. Like to me, an arcade is yeah. a gambling establishment for children. So we're literally right. programming them.
1: It's like giving them candy cigarettes, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. We're programmed, right. put money in, get the dopamine hit, you know, uh, mm-hmm. get a reward. And it's right. just, it's just crazy. And then you know, whether it's social media or TV, all of that—that's what happens with alcohol. Like watching TikTok through COVID, like the big right. joke was all these stay-at-home moms with their glasses of wine. Right. It, it's.
1: And then the memes with I only had one glass of wine. It's like this big. Yeah. I only drank one glass, and it's you know the the humor behind it. I used to go to restaurants, and I, I dreaded going to restaurants with Amanda because. The first thing that every waitress always asks, oh, would you like a glass of wine or a beer? You know, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, it's the last thing you want to do, you know?
0: Yeah, um, want, it's, it's money. A lot of it, so much of it is so money related. Right. They
1: make money on it. Right.
0: So from your, through your lens, with all that you know now, what would you say to a spouse that's in that situation? The people that have their own Amanda's.
1: Yeah, every person in that situation, that, that's a call that they have to make on their own. But ultimately, if a person is chronic and they're, they're drinking every day and they're not doing anything about it, it's also it depends on the person's personality. Now, there's there's happy drunks. Amanda was a happy drunk. At least I was lucky there. She was a very nice person. And there's mean drunks. People that the, a different side of their personality comes out where they're violent or they're verbally abusive. Um, now, if you have somebody like that, you, you need to draw a line in the sand very quickly and say, either you're going to rehab or you're going you're to you're get the help you need, or it's time to part ways, or you're, not, you're, or you're no longer going to be an enabler to that person. You're no longer going to help them financially or allow them to live in a house or you know all the other ways that you enable someone. The hardest relationship isn't just husband and wife. I think the hardest relationship is when you have a child uh, who's struggling with addiction, um, that's that's definitely the most difficult because how do you no longer enable your child, you know, a 24-year-old child? I mean, you're literally going to put them on the streets. And sometimes that's the best gift you can give either a spouse or a child is they have to hit rock bottom. Greatest lessons are learned uh, with a $0 bank account sometimes. So the person has to become resourceful. They have to grow up real fast and then the, your survival mechanism kicks in. Uh, And that person has to make the decision to either stay on the street or or, or stay in a bad situation or find a way to get out of that situation on their own. But to save the person who's enabling or the person who's on the other side of it, like myself, everybody's different and your tolerance level is different, but you will have to make the decision to part ways or everything. You're either going to be all one thing or you're going to be all one other thing. You're either going to become a healthy couple but you're no longer going to be a couple, you know? And that's, yeah. that's, that's as clear as you can be. <laughs> I
0: agree. So how are you doing? Like you said, it's been three years. Like, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, she died two and a half years ago. Well, I actually, yeah, I, I got a new girlfriend after six months, you know, beautiful little, she's from China. Uh, she's lived here for about six years. She had a house about two miles from me. We met through our kids. She's got two daughters. In fact, they moved in with me about four months ago. Okay. So I, I have a whole new, I have a whole new family and a whole new life now, you know, yeah. I have a great life now. <laughs> she lived in Japan for five years. So she makes sushi. I mean, the the best sushi in the
0: world. <laughs> <You> <laughs> Got know, it we, have,
1: we have wonderful health food. Uh, she's very healthy. She's just the opposite of Amanda. She, she's five foot three, weighs about 120 pounds and looks in the mirror and says, Oh, I'm so fat. And I was like, shut up. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. Good. It sounds like you deserve it. It was a long road to get there for sure. It was.
1: My son's doing well too. He's graduating from college next year. He's been on the Dean's late. I mean, he's doing very well.
0: Good. I'm happy to hear that. What is, I heard you want to help at least one person or, or inspire them to take a look at it, I guess, or admit it or whatever, but by publishing the book, by being out there, by showing up for the world, like, what would be the ultimate end result that would make you so happy?
1: Well, I mean, ultimately, I'm kind of ending my broker career, my insurance career, because it was really Amanda's and I's business. And I, I've always wanted to be a writer. And I want, I want this to springboard, you know, many other ideas that I have. I've already written other books, but this one in particular is probably the closest thing to, to nonfiction. I mean, it is nonfiction. It's a memoir. You can get much more nonfiction than that. And I really want to, you know, be able to do a TED Talk is what we're gearing up towards. And I'm doing a lot of media and and just gearing up. Uh, I have people looking at the book. We actually might make it into two books because it's so long. It's 600 and something pages. We're thinking about breaking it down into two, 300 page books. And I might even write a third one just as a follow up as to how I'm doing. You know, how, I, how have I been doing the last three or four years? We may, may make it into a series of three books. We're talking about doing that.
0: I didn't but. know you could do that after the book was already written. Like it's out there for people to buy right now, right?
1: Well, you, it's it's coming out in September, but we're we're talking about, you know, breaking it up. Yeah, it's coming out in about 2 months.
0: Okay. I got to write yeah. that down so I can make sure that we time yeah. this well. well. you have
1: a web you have a website? It's called you know, just you can, you can pre-order it on com. You know, just just through your email, you can pre-order it or just be on the waiting list rather.
0: Awesome. Well, what I'd like to do, too, is make sure that um, we publish this right Mm -hmm. around the launch so that um, everybody knows and can get excited before it's before it's out. So
1: because I want to do it right. I I didn't want to just put it on Amazon and have uh, sell a couple hundred copies to my friends and family. No, I want to make this into a very big book.
0: So is there anything else that you want to speak to, Andrew, that I might have forgot to ask?
1: I'm just just the, more, the most important thing is is prevention, you know, is preventing it from happening. Um, if you, if you see a friend or relative who you recognize is struggling with it, bring it up. Don't don't be shy. Don't be the person that just you know doesn't do anything about it. If you have a good enough uh, or in a significant enough relationship with the person, uh, you need to bring it up before it becomes an issue. You know, if you see somebody creating a habit and a habit is 30 days if someone's drinking 5 out of 7 days or they're turning their their 2-day weekend into a 5-day weekend uh, there's an issue there that that's a that's a pretty good uh, red light to something something there's a problem and, and catch it before it becomes chronic especially with the kids the average uh, alcoholic career starts between the ages of 13 and 18 and you want to catch it before they it goes any further
0: Wow. Good call. You answered. I was going to ask you, what does the struggling look like? And you gave us very good black and white information. on that. <laughs> right. I, so hope. I appreciate that. Thanks. Oh, Andrew, I wish you tons of luck with the book. I appreciate what you're doing, like right. more than I can express.
1: Great. Appreciate it.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much.
1: All right. Well, thank you.